Uh, so we're going to be in the book of Galatians. We're going to continue our series um, that is called Grace Changes Everything. And that's very important for you to know as we go through the book of Galatians. Um, if you are interested, we're going to be uh, titling this sermon, Isaac or Ishmael. We're currently in chapter 4. We're going to be closing out the end of uh, chapter 4 from verse 21 to 31. And the focus is going to be on Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, and Isaac, and Ishmael. Um, as you're turning there, I'll just give you a little bit of a catch-up of where we're at. Uh, right now, uh, Paul is writing a letter to the, the, the people of Gaul. So the, there's no actual Galatia. It's, it's Gaul. And the Galatian church is a collection of churches. That's like saying Central Florida, right? There's a collection of churches in Central Florida. And he's writing this letter for everyone to read it in this area. And what he's doing is he's actually, at this portion of the text, making an intersection for the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I just want to point out that word testament to you. Sometimes you can open up your Bible and see the Old Testament is like how God did it for the old folks, and the New Testament is how he does it for the new folks. But that's actually not the word. The word testament is actually closer to a word agreement. It's a word closer to a contract, or I'll go even deeper, a covenant. And I want to let you know, this is when you open up your Bible. This is how important the Bible is to us today. The Bible as an agreement or contract or covenant is closer to this kind of a word. It's when a husband and a wife stand at the altar and they get married and they make their vows. And their vows are their covenant that they agree to achieve. And a husband never stands up in, the, uh, the, in front of the, the pastor, in front of the congregation, in front of his wife and says, okay, here are my vows. You, my wife, will always cook and clean. You, my wife, will always take care of the children and always everything will be folded neatly and stacked away. Clothes will be cleaned and starched. No, no, no. It's never about the other person. It's about themselves. So the vow that God is making to us through the Bible, through the old covenant and the new covenant is what I will do for you. I want you to let that here uh, come through because this is a group of people who are culturally caught up in what they think that they can do for God. I am holy because of my nationality. By the way, I, I saw the funniest thing the other day. This, is, this isn't even in my notes. I didn't even say this the other two services. I saw a, 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 a picture of a Facebook quote, and it said, Jesus was the greatest American of all time. And if somebody, somebody responded to like, Jesus wasn't even born when America was around. And then the other person said, it's history. Look it up, sweetie. And I was just like... My brain couldn't even process how far gone that comment was. And I was just like, but some people feel a certain way. Like, because I was born in a certain country, including this particular time, Jews felt like they actually said if, if a Jewish person was born in Israel and was circumcised, that they were going to heaven. Do we know that to be true? No, your, your, your land of nationality doesn't prove that you're saved. Your church that you go to doesn't prove that you are saved. In fact, the only thing that proves that you are saved is your covenant with God. In fact, I will let you know what that God has been on the main point the whole time is, is that we were dealing with Abraham, and Abraham was never actually accounted righteousness until he believed. Not that he was circumcised, not that he followed the rules. It says in Genesis that he became accounted righteous before the Lord because he heard the Lord and he followed. Not that he was perfect. Not that he kept the rules. It's because he followed a God that he loved because God loved him. 
And that's where the setup it is. And so what we're seeing is from the old covenant, the old covenant looked like this. I would sin. And then I in the Old Testament would go to the temple and I would have this sin on my heart and my mind and I would bring a sheep with me or whatever animal I did and I would place my hand on that animal and I would transfer my sin to that animal and the priest would slice its throat open and the blood would be shed. And I would have to deal that an innocent being died for my sin because I couldn't behave, because I refused to behave. And now I had to be confronted with that. But the Lord would remind us in the Old Testament that that was a temporary atonement because that's a temporary animal in a temporary earth. But we have an eternal problem, don't we? We have broken faith with an eternal God as eternal beings. You do realize that your soul is eternal. And because you are a sinner and you have broken faith with God, you've rebelled against God, you have refused to follow God, you have an eternal problem that requires an eternal solution. So the new covenant, the new agreement is God saying, I will provide a solution for you. And that solution is an eternal lamb. And his name is Jesus Christ. So the work that the Lord did upon the cross was never our work, it was his. And he provided because he loved us. And that is what we're looking at. So when we're going through the book of Galatians, you can see that through the lens of this book, the religions can be broken down into two categories. Am I trying to win over the Lord by impressing myself as I keep the rules? So am I trying in my flesh? Am I saying that I'm good enough? Have I accounted myself righteous enough? Or am I trusting in God and being united to God in his spirit by understanding this, that I need a savior? Let me, let me explain that for you. The Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, but what has been revealed by the Spirit. So the very act of you being saved came to you by way of miracle. The supernatural Spirit of the Lord came to you and said, you are not well. You are sick with a disease and its name is sin. You are selfish and self-centered and you have a God-sized hole in your heart and only God can fill it. But the Lord didn't give you a set of rules for you to achieve the filling of your heart of a God. He sent his Lord. He sent his Savior. He sent Jesus Christ to die for you. And then you said with the revelation, that makes total sense. But if you're fine, if you're good, then you don't need Jesus Christ. And that doesn't make any sense to you. But if he did reveal to you, it's called in the Bible, the, the veil was lifted from your eyes or the calluses of your heart were taken off and the Lord penetrated your heart and you said, yes, I need that savior. The moment you did that, that was a supernatural miracle. The spirit revealed it to you and you received. And guess what? You are now saved. But let me just say this. You weren't just saved and all of a sudden you were a super awesome Christian Jedi. And then you just floated everywhere and like pixie dust of Christianity just floated out of you. And everybody that got hit by it was like, oh, look at the grace and mercy flowing from that person. Look at all the wonderful works of the Spirit. No, there was a continual work, wasn't it? And for that continual work to take place, what did you have to do? You had to unite yourself to God's Spirit and let Him lead. Let him work. Exactly. And so that's what we're doing. So what's happening in, in Gaul at this particular time is that uh, Paul would go to an area and he would preach the gospel. And the gospel was this, Jesus needs to do the work. And people said, yes, and amen. Hallelujah. I will receive that Jesus. And they would set up a church. And then Paul would go continue his missionary work and go to another place and set up another church. But there's a group of people called Judaizers that would come behind him. Now, these are a group of people that are uh, playing upon the people's culture. You understand that a lot of these Jews that were converting were coming out of a Jewish culture and they're trying to wrestle between their culture and their faith. 
I'm going to say that one more time. I wonder if that's happening today. It's a group of people wrestling between their culture and their faith. Does your culture make you holy? No, no matter how good it is, it doesn't. There's only one thing that can make you holy is Jesus Christ. And these Judaizers would come along and say, yes, that's true. You need Jesus Christ, but you also need to be kosher. You also need to be circumcised. You also need to wear a certain type of clothes and cut your hair a certain type of way. And if any of you devoured any part of the pig this morning, you said, no, we do not. Jesus has set us free from the law. I had crispy bacon because God loves me. (laughs) That is what happened today because I am united to God in spirit, not by diet. Amen? In the Protestant uh, Reformation, they had this great statement, and I love it. It's so good. It sums everything up. It says this, Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. You know, the only portion that you own in that whole statement is your faith. But you know what your faith is? Looking and seeing that something is true and calling it true. How hard is that to do? One plus one is two. It ain't blue. It ain't Thomas Jefferson. One plus one is two. Me plus Jesus Christ equals his righteousness. That'll get me to heaven. It's that simple. I believe that to be true. Because apart from Christ, as we see that statement right there, I can do nothing. I will not be good enough. Who of us can get to heaven and stand before the Lord and go, have you seen how much I tithed? I think you want to let me in, Lord. No, you'll never say that. Have you seen how many days of compassion I went to? Do you see how many people I invited to Christ? You could invite the entire city of Sebastian and the whole city of Sebastian could get saved. Does that mean you'll be saved? No, you have to be confronted with a sickness in your heart that is sin and Dr. Jesus has to go in and do the work, not you. And so that's where the heaviest responsibility rests on God, which means for us as Christians, we don't have to try to do good. We have to follow good. You see the difference? I'm not trying to put in a place my self-righteousness before the Lord because my self-righteousness is what put Jesus on the cross in the first place. What I'm trying to do is get a hold of this, the free gift that Jesus Christ gave me on the cross. The moment you ask for forgiveness, are you forgiven? Why? Because God is good and that work has already been done. And what do we do after that? Do I have to try to outdo the thing that I just did? No, I rest in his grace. And that's what we're doing. So if you look with me, uh, chapter 4, verse 21, we're going to break this down as how he explains it. Chapter 4, verse 21, he says, tell me you who want to be under the law. Are you not aware of what the law says? By the way, I love how Paul talks to people. I mean, it's really, it's really awesome. He's being very critical of them. And I think it's a good point. He's really asking them to be critical of themselves. He's saying to them, why do you want to be under the law so bad? The truth is, is because we want to be in control. And the more that we're in control, guess who's in less control? God. We're not allowing God to be in control because I'm setting the pace. And so what he's saying there is the first, if you look, you see there's two different laws that are in that verse. He says, tell me you who want to be under the law. That first law is who wants to be considered righteous by their own rules. It's a different word of law. The rules that you set. But I want to let you know something. How many times, has anyone done this? I've done this. Uh, month of January, I set rules for myself. No carbs in January. And then all of a sudden, it was no carbs in January except if I'm at church and somebody hands me a piece of cake. Because it's on holy ground, guys. It counts differently. <laughs> Do you see how my rules are changing? My set of righteousness is changing. Okay, but what if mom makes it? You know, mom is always going to guilt you. 
I know you're on a diet, but I made it for you specifically, my boy. Well, if mom made it, then I got to eat it. You see how my rules are changing by the minute? By the minute. By the smell, really. You know, so, well, that smells really good. But does that mean my standard of righteousness is one that I can be counted? I can't even keep myself righteous. How can I judge God's righteousness? Your righteousness, God, it's different. It's, it's not good enough. And so he goes on to say this, are you not aware of what the law says? He's basically saying here on the second word, the law is, are you not aware of what the, what the Torah says? Are you not aware of what Genesis through Deuteronomy already says? I'm going to give you a more modern translation. This is a Joey translation. Do not copy this. It is not canon, but I want you to see it. This is the translation to us today. Tell me, you people who want to earn their own righteousness by your own power and your own works. Have you ever actually read the Bible? Where in the Bible did anybody save themselves? The first time or the last time? And that's the problem with legalistic thinking. Think about the Pharisees that Jesus came up against. Did they count themselves holy? Because they counted themselves holy by themselves. I don't know if you remember, we did a teaching a couple of years ago on tradition. If you ever get a chance, get your hands on the, uh, the movie The Fiddler on the Roof. They have a great opening song about how Jews feel about tradition. But I, more importantly, I want to point out to you is there's a tradition that was happening in Jesus' time where these uh, Pharisees would spend time with the Lord and they would hear God laugh because God would say, you don't need me anymore. You've matured, my boys. You have the law. Go on. Be mature. But the same Pharisees would run right up against the Bible, which is the living word, which is Jesus Christ, when he showed up and said, you are not righteous. And what did the Pharisees do? Kill the Son of God. Because the Pharisees started thinking about doing life apart from God. See, the more righteousness you have for yourself, the less righteousness you have for the Lord, which also means there's no conviction, there's no growth, and there's no discipleship. Which brings us to our first point. What God started in the Spirit must be completed in the Spirit. You see how elementary this is? As we, don't, we make it so difficult. We make it so hard. We try to say, well, if I could do this or I can achieve this, what we're doing is we're wrestling away control from the Lord. We don't want the Lord to come in and tell us because the confrontation of a relationship makes you look yourself in the mirror, doesn't it? I'll give you the case in point. If anybody's been married uh, in this room, you understand that's the moment that you moved in together. Some changes had to take place. And all the ladies who ever married a bachelor and saved him from his bachelor life said, amen. <laughs> the moment that my wife and I got together and we moved into our uh, uh, tiny little apartment where there wasn't a lot of space for me to throw all my stuff, guess what? My stuff was in her way. And she's like, look, the shoes don't go in the middle of the hallway. The dirty clothes don't go on the floor. Where do they go? There's a place and a time. But why? Because when the two become one, there's going to have to be some change. The old habits are going to have to go out of the way. But what happens when Jesus Christ moves into your heart? What changes have to be made? What things have to go away? What old habits will not exist when you make union with him? And then you know what? If you were to look at him, you would say, this thing, if we get down to it, whatever this thing is, it's not worthy of him. We got to get rid of it. That's why in Philippians 1.6, Paul says this. Being confident of this. Think of that word confidence. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Remember what I said? We don't wake up the day after we're saved completely all-powerful Christians. There is a unique word that is in the middle of that sentence, and it is work. And sometimes that's difficult for us to, to handle, especially if we're retired. 
The word work is, sounds like work, doesn't it? That good work. What is God doing? There's a good work that God's doing. He's going in and he's cleaning out. Have you ever watched the show Hoarders? It's one of my favorite shows. Like, and I'm not trying to make any, I'm not going to cast any judgment on these people. I don't know what they've been doing. Usually there's a lot of trauma involved, so I'm not making light of the situation, but I can't turn away. It's like a car wreck, and I just, I can't stop watching. And Jackie's like, turn it off. I'm like, there's like five more episodes coming up. And like, what happens is you, these people, if you've ever seen the show Hoarders, are people, for whatever reason, have emotional attachments to their stuff, and they don't get rid of it. In fact, they fill up their entire house to the point, it's very tragic that they have like a tiny little channel where they can walk to room to room and no other room. In fact, in some places, I've seen it so sad where they had so much stuff in their house, they couldn't even lay down on their bed because their bed was covered. And there's a lot of trauma involved, but they can't think of another way to live. And then a television crew and their family and some experts show up. And you can see there's a kind of like a debate that goes on with the person. It's almost like, like, I'll give you something. They go, well, you can clean out the garage and the living room, but don't touch this other stuff because I can't let it go. But the truth of it is, is once the psychologist and the family get in there and they start like digging and pulling the stuff out, they go, why can't you let this go? The people have never resolved those issues. They've never faced those problems. And so they think they're doing a good job by holding on to it and respecting those problems and keeping them in their place. But the fact of the matter is they're not living a true life, a full life, an abundant life. I have to ask you this question. If Jesus Christ showed up with a crew full of angels with surgical gloves on and they're like, all right, here we go. We got to move some stuff out. Would you be ready? And are those things that you're holding on to worth holding on to? Or can you let them go to the Lord? And a lot of the times, the people themselves who live in those houses don't actually do the cleaning. It's everybody else. Let's think about this. Would you allow Jesus Christ with his blood to go inside of your heart and start removing what is not necessary for an eternal life, for a full life? And if not, what's the reason why? I'm going to say this. It's not for me to fix, and it's not for you to fix. It's for Jesus Christ to fix. And I'll let you know, this is actually happening in your life daily. Because some of you go, well, I have some unresolved issues or I have some issues that I can't get over. Let me just tell you how good the work is already. Who here considers himself a Christian? Raise your hand. Okay, put your hands down. Who here still sins occasionally or even a lot? Who here sins a lot less since the day you've been saved and God's been working on you? Has God begun that big good work in you? Every day, it's the Lord and his spirit that is confronting you and coming into your heart. And that's why your self-righteousness will never be good because there may be places in your heart and you say, okay, God, I've achieved it. I've arrived. And he'd be like, ho, 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 ho. We got 15 other rooms we got to clear out in your heart. Oh, no, no, they'll be fine. No, no. He's like, no, no, we're going to clean the whole thing today. And so that's what the Lord is saying. So continue with that. This is where he's making this case uh, in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. And his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of divine promise. So just to catch you up with this little part of the story, he's, remember he's making a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The spirit of the Lord came to Abraham. He was a pagan. He lived in a land where he did pagan worship and the Lord presented himself and then he gave his heart to the Lord and he followed the Lord. Remember he said he believed and it was counted for him to be righteous. And the Lord said, I'm going to do something amazing. I'm going to establish a covenant. Remember what I'm going to do for you. Remember that covenant in marriage? What I'm going to do for you. I'm going to let the spirit of the Lord fall on you. 
and I'm going to give you a child. And that child will bear many seeds, and that child will come to be known as the nation of Israel. And then after that, there will be a new son, and his name will be Jesus Christ. And it all because my covenant with you, my spirit fell. And Abraham said, that's great. I'm 75 years old. I'm going to let you know, somebody was questioning me the other day. They're like, how old are you? Because your sons are super energetic. I'm like, I'm in my 40s, and yes, they run me ragged. And I was like, but when I read that sentence that Abraham was 75 years old, I get tired just reading it. Can you imagine holding a wild three-year-old at 75? But the Lord would go ahead and say this to Abraham and Sarah, and they would not have this child for another 25, 30 years. So that means we're reaching our hundreds. That's the Holy Spirit, guys, right? There's no, like, I'm doing this on my own. It would take a lot of Jesus and a lot of Red Bull at 100 to get through the raising of a child, right? So the Lord is saying here right now, it's by my spirit. But what happens is Abraham and Sarah get a little, like, stir-crazy in the waiting. 25 years is a long way, time to wait, especially at their age, waiting for a kid. Remember, I'm going to make a great nation. Maybe we should get to it. So at the time, she says, why don't you take my handmaiden and sleep with her, and then she'll bear a child for you, and that will be your lineage, and I will let you know, this is a common practice in the Middle East. Middle Eastern people, if they had a barren wife, would actually do, take the handmaiden, and the handmaiden's child will be their own child, except that's not what God said. God said, do not sleep with Hagar. Abraham obviously didn't have a problem with it. But God said, I want you and Sarah to have a baby, because therefore, it is a divine miracle. I want people to look at you and see me. I want to see a nation of people that rest on the spirit of the Lord, not the works of their flesh. And so God would come back years later and remind uh, Abraham, oh, remember my promise? I'm going to make good on it. But think about awkward this. You know the Bible's full of awkward situations. I pictured Abraham with Ishmael on his, Ishmael was the son that came through Hagar, his handmaiden. His, on, his, was like bouncing him on his knee on his lap and it's like the Lord shows up and goes, oh, by the way, you and Sarah are still going to have a baby. Like, uh, uh, oh, yeah, 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 Lord, yes, yes. Oh, I should have listened to you by the Spirit, and I should have trusted you by the Spirit, because it says this in Genesis 17, 17. It says, Abraham fell face down, and he laughed and said to himself, because what else are you going to do at 100? Will a son be born to a man of 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing, because don't punish Ishmael for my mistake. That's the heart of a father. But just think about this. He says, will a son be born to a man that's 100 and a woman and 90? Look at God's word. Yes. Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. And what does the next sentence say? I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Let's think about how amazing this is. He's saying to him, the covenant that I'm going to make with you will last forever. I don't need your help. I just need you to hear and listen. And if anybody in this room is 90 and 100, let's be real, I'm not going to get into the birds and the bees, but wouldn't it take an act of the Holy Spirit to produce a child at that age? I know there's modern medicine and all this kind of thing. We're not getting all that. I'm saying right now, wouldn't it take an act of God to make that happen? What is the participation of the people involved in this story? To hear and obey. That's it. Not be perfect. Not to be so pure and holy that they're just like the greatest things in sliced bread. No, to be 
people that hear and obey. Do you not know that God has selected you right where you are at and has begun that good work to produce a new thing in you, to move you forward? You will never go to God and show him anything that he isn't going to be shocked by. I didn't know you did that. I didn't know you had that bad habit. I didn't know you had a hoarder's life in your heart. No, he says, I'm here for that. Let me do the work. You just listen, follow, and obey. So that's the historical context that he's listening. I need you to be a people that live by the Spirit. Now he's going to go to allegorical. Now, if you look at verse 24, he's not just talking to the people of Gaul. He's talking to us in this room right now. That's how powerful the word of the Lord is. Look at this, verse 24. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants or two testaments. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. Now, do you remember what happened at Mount Sinai? Moses came down with two stone tablets called the Ten Commandments or the law. And so what did he do is call the law? People that are stuck under the law are slaves. And this is Hagar. And now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. So at that time, in that place, he's saying, even though you guys call yourself awesome because you're Jews, your nationality is Jewish, and your religion is Jewish, and yet you have none of God and grace in your heart. Because remember what I said? The tradition was, we have the law. We no longer need God. Remember, the more of my self-righteousness comes in, the more that I crowd God out. And what does he say? The current city of Jerusalem, as close as they think they are to God, they are not because they are self-righteous. Look at verse 26. This is our verse. But the Jerusalem that above, that is above, is free. And she is our mother, for it is written, be glad, barren woman. He's quoting Isaiah 54 right now. Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud. You who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than are the women who have a husband. I'm going to give you the translation on that. One day in the future... There will be a group of disciples that go out and meet the Gentiles right where they're at and preach the gospel, and the Holy Spirit will get a hold of them. And that would be the 12 disciples in the book of Acts. And 2,000 years later, in Sebastian, Florida, there will be more Christians up and down the state of Florida than there might even be in Israel, let alone the world. Why? Because God's spirit went forth. So we didn't, we didn't win the world over in Christianity with rules and laws. What did we win the world over with? Jesus Christ and grace. Grace is abounding and spreading across the planet because the world already knows they can't live up to the rules. The world already knows that they need a relationship with God. The world already knows that they are a failure apart from God. And then Jesus Christ came to them and met them where they're at. And so the scriptures right now, is think about this. How many Jews are in Israel? Probably, I think it's about 5 million, they said. How many are in the world? They said some, something closer to above 25 million. How many Christians are in the world? The number abounds. So everything is in place. And I want to point out to you, there's two things that are happening in this verse. Everything that God is saying has is, is come true. Is the nation of Israel still standing? Why? Because Jews are awesome? Because God is awesome. And guess what? The gospel that was meant for the Jews and went to the Jews is now spread to the, to the Gentiles. Are there a lot of Christians in the world that outnumber the Jews? Did God promise that? That's a sign to you guys right now, a supernatural miracle saying, look at my prophecy, it's come true. You guys in this room that count yourself as Christians are the supernatural prophecy of God saying, look at my Christians, look how good I've done. 
Why? For us to see that there is a new covenant. There are two covenants in this in this listing right here. There's two mothers, one slave, one free, one born of the works of the flesh, and one born of the obedience of the work of the Spirit. Who could save the world? The Ten Commandments or Jesus? Who could make somebody fall in love with God? The Ten Commandments or Jesus? Why are you here today? The Ten Commandments or Jesus? This is what Paul is saying. You are a people of grace. And you were born of grace. So if we've been started by a work of the Spirit and been revealed to us from the Spirit, we must continue in that Spirit. Which brings us to our next point. As I become united to God in Spirit, I learn to live by the Spirit first and not the flesh. So as I let God present his gospel to me in the Spirit, guess what? I continue in that Spirit. The more that he continues to work in me and take out the old and bring in the new, the more that I fall in love with God. Do you know what God's replaced in my life? Let me just tell you. You know he's replaced with bitterness and unforgiveness? Forgiveness. You know how much forgiveness has healed my family? You know how much unforgiveness has ripped apart my family? He's put inside of me a new outlook on life. You know how much despair I had when I was trying to commit suicide? You know how excited I am every day now to see what Jesus is about to do? Two different lives. Two different lives. You see what Jesus does? It's time for him to come and I, you know what? I don't own any of that. I'll tell you what I own. Look at the verse on the screen, John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who, what's the next word? Believe. Believed. That's all I had to do. I had to believe the truth to be true. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. This is direct from John, who spent time with Jesus. Not blood, not will of the flesh, not will of man, but of God. You know what he's saying there is, not anything that is good that came of you was born out of your own flesh. You've never impressed God, or even really, and you think about it, you've never even actually impressed yourself. The only thing that's good and supernatural and awesome and miracle that's happened in your life has come by the Spirit. And so that's a great way for you to decide what you're doing in your life. You can ask yourself, am I doing this out of my flesh? Or am I doing this because the Spirit has led me? Let me give you a case in point. Am I going to punch this guy in the face because he offended me in my flesh? Or am I going to do it for Jesus? Wait, let me stop and think. <laughs> Jesus, do you want me to punch this guy in the face? No, no, you don't. Why? Because you've forgiven me. Oh, you forgave me for my whole life. So all the times that I've wronged you, you forgave even the ones I haven't even committed yet. Okay, you forgive me. Oh, I should forgive him. Oh, because I forgive him, I will now break the cycle of hate and bitterness and, and, and unforgiveness. Okay, Lord, I will not punch him in the spirit. You see how much of a different person you are? But what would my impulsive flesh and my self righteousness say? How dare you talk to me like that? If I had a glove, I'd pull it off. and <laughs> Because I'm within my right. I am justified, but am I? No, not before the Lord, I'm not. But God knows our heart, doesn't he? God knows our heart, and he goes down all the way down to the intentions. He goes down all the way to your very being and says, I'm not here to work on you on an outward level. I'm here to work on an inward level because we are the living temples of Jesus Christ. Just think about this. Have you ever come across somebody's awesome Facebook page and go, I'll never be as awesome as they are? But then you find out about their life. Then you find out how deep the, the wounds go. You feel how dark the situation actually is. But that's not what you see on the surface, is it? And the Lord is saying, I can't minister to your Facebook page. I can't minister to your Instagram. I have to minister to where I live, and that's your heart. Do you understand that God has moved into your heart to do some work? And so what he's saying is, is I know your heart, and I want to see you produce a new 
thing, a new child, a new faith. I want you to just be a person of grace. Look at verse 28. Now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are a children of promise. And at that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. Interesting word that it is the same now. I will give you a little bit of insight on what this is. This is, this is the free Bible seminary college class that you're about to go through in one minute. So what it says here is that there was a child of promise, and the child of promise was actually promised before the law. I want to give you this. Bible promises Jesus Christ, Genesis chapter 3. The moment that, that, that Adam and Eve sin, God goes, man, you guys are the worst. You're a bunch of Fruit Loops. Follow these rules, and then uh, maybe I'll talk to you again. No, he goes, I have to send the Messiah. There has to be one that comes that crushes the head of the serpent, and then he will be your savior. That's Genesis chapter 3. And then Genesis chapter 12 through 17, God presents a promise to Abraham. And what's that promise to Abraham? That there will be a nation that comes out of you, a seed and a covenant that I make with you. And my son, Jesus Christ, will come through you. And then when he comes, I will lay my son on the altar to exchange places with you. It's the work that I'm going to do. The, the actual work of the law didn't come till Moses. And that's the book of Exodus. And then he even says, the only reason that I gave you the rules and the only reason I gave you the law is so that you could see that you were not good. And that's what he's saying right here. He's saying, I want you to see that. Now, tradition says that uh, at a weaning ceremony, and that's what this is. This is a weaning ceremony, I guess, in this particular culture. At three years old, when a kid got off of milk and got onto solids, they would celebrate. This is a time where he's on his way to becoming a man. And they're having a celebration. At this time, Isaac, who has been born through Sarah, is about three years old. Ishmael's about 17. And him being the older kid is going, why are they throwing a party for him and not me? Why am I getting passed over? I'm the firstborn. But what the, the case in point is, when you were born to a slave, you were never going to receive the inheritance of the father. The only thing that can receive the inheritance of the father is what comes by the mother. And the mother is the mother of promise. And so in this particular case, he's not condemning anybody born in any situation. God absolutely loved Ishmael. But the call was, is I need Abraham and Sarah to be obedient. And out of your obedience and your connection to me in faith comes the promise to, to fruition. God is not going to bless your sin. He's going to bless your obedience. But he's always going to be good to you. And so right now, it's some of the Jewish tradition at this time is, I don't know how true this is, but Jewish tradition holds that uh, Ishmael at 17 was taking bow and arrow and shooting it at the three-year-old uh, uh, Isaac and taunting him. And Sarah saw this. And Sarah said, no, can't have this happen, of course. This cannot be this place. But I just want to remember this. The promise came before the law. And then the promise continued to carry us after the law. It's kind of an image of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ was promised before the law showed up, and then he came. And then what did the Pharisees try to do to Jesus Christ? They tried to bully him. They tried to bully him and bully him and bully him. Did they win? No, they did not. Let's continue. Look at verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. I want to ask you this right now. Are we free from the law? Yes, we're free from the punishment of the law. Do we still continue under the law? We, do, we, we, we observe the law because we love the Lord. We don't observe the law because we want to win the Lord's love. You understand this, that the moment that you ask Jesus into your heart, you cannot disappoint him or impress him anymore than the moment that you have said, Jesus be my savior. There is no shifting levels of grace. There is only you going to Jesus Christ, you are my savior, and that's it. And so, 
And once again, it's like going to a doctor. Our self-righteousness will always replace our relationship with the Lord. If we go like this, if I walk into the doctor and he goes, sit down, please. I don't have a conversation with you. And I go, yes. And he goes, you're sick. You're sick with, this, with cancer. Okay, I want to hear some good news. I don't want to hear any more out of that. Does that affect the problem? No. Does that change the problem? No. Is the problem still there? Absolutely. And so anything out of that cannot be addressed. And so what the Lord is saying, I have to come in and do this good work because your ignorance will not save you. I have to save you. The doctor has to save you. I have the know-how. Let's think about this on a scientific level. Do you know how to get your soul to heaven? I mean, the actual workings of it. Do you know what the blood of Jesus Christ actually does when it lands? We, we know that it cleanses us and makes it whole, but how does that actually work? I don't know. Do you trust that he does? And how do I trust him? Because I've trusted him from the beginning because he's been good to me. And because he's been good to me, I have more faith in him. The more I have faith in him, I make myself available to him. And every time I've made myself available to him, he's shown me how good he is. And the less... I want more, uh, the less I want of my righteousness and the more I want of his righteousness, my life has gotten better and better and better every day. Remember what I told you what I exchanged? I exchanged anxiety for hope. I exchanged fear for faith. Why? Because it's God's faith in me. It says in the Bible that Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of your faith. That means the faith that you are getting in Jesus Christ is being poured into you from Jesus Christ. It's not even your faith. Everything that is good is coming from God to me so that I can give it back to God. So why? So I can trust in it. I will not trust in myself because I change daily. The things I want change daily. I'm like a kite blowing in the wind, but not Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. From the book of Genesis to today, he said one thing. I want to be your work. I want to do the heavy lifting. Cast your cares on me. Let me do the, all the, the little pushing. Let me do all the cleaning. You, if you're not up for it, so be it. I will. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God is up to it? Do you believe he's good enough to do it? That's his righteousness and not ours. I'm going to bring this particular Bible verse up to you right now. It says this also, James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. The proud will always say to God, Thank you, but no thank you. Don't need your help. I'm good enough. Who can stand before the Lord? Who can stand before the cross and say, thank you, Jesus, but I got it from here? Who can carry the burden of their own salvation? But the humble, he stands before and they say, Lord, not my way, but your way. You know, there's a story in the, in the New Testament what Jesus says, and it exemplifies it so perfectly. <clears throat> there's a Pharisee that walks into the sanctuary and a, and a tax collector that walks in the, into the sanctuary. And if any of you are doing anything right now at tax time, we can all boo, hiss, yes. <laughs> IRS gets no love. But the, the Pharisee stands over this tax collector, which is actually really kind of running counter to everything that Jewish culture believes. They're, they're working for the Roman government. They're really bad. And the Pharisee comes in, and this is how he declares his righteousness before the Lord. He goes, thank you, Lord, for not making me like this guy, this weirdo, this. This is my standard of righteousness. I'm better than him. The Pharisee thinks he's done a great job. Tax collector is on his knees before the Lord, can't even look up, beats his chest before God. And he says, Lord, please just have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. You know, it says in right here that God would rather let, you, let him exalt you than yourself. And he would rather humble those that exalt themselves. Why? Because apart from God, we don't stand a chance. 
And we don't stand a chance for this one verse. I want you to see. Remember it said there is a present city that is from heaven above? Look at Revelations chapter 21. Isn't it great? If you ever want to know how the book ends, you just skip to the end. (laughs) This is what happens when you trust in the obedience that God has called you to and you let the spirit work in you. It says in verse 21, this is what you're being prepared for. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, notice it didn't say from the Supreme Court or from Congress or from the offices of the president. It came from the throne of Jesus Christ. It says, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. You know what you are being prepared for today and we should start living for it? This moment. This moment when you walk, can you imagine take drawing a new celestial breath and being in heaven and being there where the Lord says, I want to create a world where I am king and nothing else rules and reign, including sin, including death, and there will be no more tears. You know why? Because it will no longer be a world where, where the work is being uh, worked inside of us. It'll be completed. You know what it will be? We will be a people of grace under a king of grace. And nothing else will be able to rule and reign with Christ. It'll just be Christ. And that is what you are being prepared for today, for this moment. And anytime that we run away from this type of thinking, we are creating essentially a new religion. Not your way, Lord, but my way. I got to go a different way. And the Lord's going, but when we get to the new Jerusalem, there will be no other way. There will just be love. Everything else that you're creating is dissension and disunity with the spirit, but the spirit has come to get rid of all the old and get rid of all the bad and to put in the new and that is good. Think about this. The Lord wants to walk and talk with you and be with you and be in presence and be a a father to you as children. What inside of you today has no place in front of God? Get rid of it. And if you can't, let the Lord. Let the Lord do the work because the Lord wants to let you know this last slide we're going to put up. It says, as children of God, born of the Spirit, we surrender to the truth. And what is the truth? In the war of sin, we were won by his love. We were won. Just think about that. As an enemy of God through our sin, what was his weapon of choice? Love. So today when we came to church, We didn't come to a church service so we could check off a box. You know what we came to? A family reunion under our God. Because we're his children. And he says, I don't want you to know anything else but this. I want you to know this. Think about the prodigal son. Remember when the prodigal son came home? Remember the prodigal son? He took his dad's inheritance before he was dead and went out and spent it. And then he became like destitute. And then he came back home because he was thinking, even my dad's slaves live better than this. His servants in his house live better than this. And he comes and he grovels at his dad's feet. And he says, would you just let me be a servant in your house? And would his dad have any of it? No, what does his dad do? Put on my robe, your outfit. It's not befitting of the party I'm about to throw for you. Put on my robes, my richly luxurious robe. That was grace. Put on my ring so that when everybody sees you, they see me. They see my name upon your finger to know that I identify with you and you identify me. Me, the lowly sinner? Me, the one that ripped you off? Me, the one that breaks faith with you daily, that rebelled against you? Yes, absolutely you. By the way, let's have a huge sacrifice. Kill the fatted calf. I hold nothing back. I pour everything on you. Why? Grace, why? Because I love you. 
This is our inheritance. It has no place in slavery. It has no place in self-righteousness. Everything good that we're holding on to, the robes of righteousness, the name that's upon our finger, the sacrifice that Jesus gave us, all belongs to him. And you know what his glory is? The fact that he is so great and we say, you are worthy. You are worthy. Only you are worthy. We were saved by grace. That grace has begun its good work and it completes in us and every day we fall deeper in love with it. That's why in 1 Thessalonians it says this, may God himself, not the God of war, but the God of peace, sanctify or continually cleanse you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. And by the way, that word is not perfect. That word is blameless. That means forgiven. May your whole body be kept forgiven. Is anybody here forgiven? Is it by the blood of Jesus Christ? Done by the work of Jesus Christ? And has it been revealed to you by the Spirit? Why? For at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like the father called the prodigal son, his son said, come home, put on the robes. One day Jesus Christ is going to go, come to New Jerusalem and be with us. I will let you know this. I have tried and I have failed. Um, I have gotten worn out trying to be a good Christian. And then I started listening to the Spirit and everything's been great. Now, everything externally may not be great, but everything internally has been amazing. And it's done by the work of the Lord. And I will let you know this. Every day, at every turn, I have fallen in love deeper with the Lord when I realize how much he loves me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for being a God that is so good to us, and you have poured out such pure grace on us, and it's a grace that we do not deserve. You hung from the cross, and you said for of our sins, it is finished. And so, Lord, I say to you, continue doing your good work inside of us. It might be hard for me to look. It might be hard for me to deal with, but it's not hard for you. It's sweet when you do it. It's gentle when you do it. It's grace-filled when you do it. And so I trust you and I lean on you and I, I follow you all my days. I might not be perfect, but I am blameless. I am forgiven. I have been made holy by you. And so, Lord, I call to you right now as a sinner. You are my Messiah. I am your child. And you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.